0: Welcome to the Get More for Coaches podcast show. I'm your host, Joe B. Slay, an author of Get More for Coaches. This is a great episode for me because I'm going back to my alma mater, Palm Beach Atlantic University, and I'm sitting down with Coach Brian McMahon of the Palm Beach Atlantic Men's Soccer Program. Uh, Coach Mac is a, a good friend of mine, and I've learned a lot from him over the past few years in uh, coaching and, and that I've been able to take and, and use with my teams. Coach Mack, as he is known, is a national championship winning coach um, in the NAIA with Bellhaven University. Coach Mack with the Palm Beach Atlantic University Men's Soccer Program led them to the NCAA Elite Eight a few years ago, and in that season he was named United Soccer Coaches South Region Coach of the Year and also named the 2016 Palm Beach County Sports Commission Coach of the Year. In his last season... Coach Mack's team only lost one game the entire season and had the highest winning percentage in NCAA Division II and was named as the Sunshine State Conference Coach of the Year for his second season in a row. We are sitting down with Coach Mack to talk about his experiences in 20 years of coaching collegiate soccer, learn a little bit about his his playing time, What he's looking for now as he recruits players, as he's looking to lead more teams back to championships, as he continues to pursue a NCAA Division II National Championship. As you listen to this episode, please give us a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts. And also remember you can find more episodes at getmorecoach.com and also find how you can order our book, Get More for Coaches. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Coach Mack. All right, sitting down with Brian McMahon, and we're here at Palm Beach Atlantic University, um, where you've been the coach now for how
1: long? Six years, starting into my sixth season this Six year. Years. Mm-hmm. okay.
0: Yeah, and that's about the time we met. Um, mm-hmm. I want to jump. Straight into a question I had for you because I know it's something that is really important with you that I've seen in your coaching mm-hmm. um, that I think will be valuable to other coaches it has been valuable to me um, your um, focus on planning and preparation mm-hmm. um, and how that builds the success for your players and your teams just tell us a little bit about that and why that's so important to you
1: I think players appreciate consistency, so the most important thing, I I recently heard a story, I was talking to a a player who plays for a coach, um, and I won't say the coach, but he was telling me that when they show up to training, a lot of times things aren't done, things aren't ready, Uh, the field maybe is not prepared really well, Uh, they kind of get to the field and they're like, what should we do today, and I, I think that leaves players with the wrong message, so... I think over preparing um, in some regards, uh, you know, having an idea on what you want to accomplish on any given day is most important. I think consistency for players is, is something that they really appreciate. I did when I was a coach. Um, I think sometimes coaches who are younger coaches, you know, make a mistake where players stand around a lot and they kind of waste time out on a field. I, I really never have a training session longer than an hour and 15 minutes. And that sounds like well, that's not very long at all. But I think the players would also say they're pretty worn out after an hour and fifteen minutes.
0: Yeah, it's long if you've if everything's running and every they're moving right. from one drill to the next to the next. Right. It's long when it's two hours and it's just dragging because yeah. you're trying to set up for the next session or right. the next session, and right. you, know, you can get a lot done in that right. that hour and fifteen when it's planned right. and prepared. How do you think about that as far as, you know, when, you, when you're when you mapping out the season, do you mm-hmm. look at the whole season and map it out from kind of start to finish the ideas of what you're going to be working on, um, you know, looking at it from, you know, start to finish or from kind of finish to back to the beginning? How, how do you look right. at
1: that as you're right. planning it? Yeah, I've been a college coach now for you know, close to 20 years in my season and seasons have themes. So, but it would be a mistake for any coach to have the whole season planned out. You can have ideas and concepts, but a lot of times injuries can change uh, what you're trying to accomplish. Maybe some coaches look to change a formation or a strategy. Um, you know, th- those things can affect things. And, and so I look for general tendencies and themes. I think the other thing that when you start beginning of the season, players aren't, as sharp as what they'll be middle or late of the season. So sometimes you know you may have the same things that you're doing later in season, but you challenge them a little more. So let's say you're playing a possession game and let's say you're gonna do it in a 40 by 40 space. As season goes on, you want to tighten that space up. You know, so now it's 30 by 30, you're 25 by 25. The the key is is that players just sharpen up. They're a little quicker, their touches are a little bit cleaner. So, you know, you have concepts and tendencies that you do from beginning to end of the season, which are, which are fairly similar. The difference is is that you challenge the players a little bit more with the parameters you put on them. Uh, so in soccer, you know, maybe giving them less touches or less time on a ball or less numbers. Um, I think, you know, we don't change. It's, you, know, you don't want to reinvent the wheel and try to make things up. So we stay fairly consistent. I would say we have about 12... Exercises, or some people call them drills, and that's really all we do the whole course of the year. But there's a lot of different variations in that which we can start getting to middle and late in the season when players are a little bit sharper on their, you know, on their decision making and their touch. You
0: saying that made me
1: think of uh, a video I
0: saw recently, and I know you're a big fan of Pep Guardiola, mm-hmm. and it was um, it was a former Bayern coach. Discussing how you know Pep Guardiola maybe has 20 something drills or something that he will run through in a season, and that's and it's the same ones, focus on that. And when we went up to the Jacksonville University um, team camp, I took my team up there. I know you've coached that before, Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. coach that was um, running the session uh, for them for the weekend. And my son's session, and and these are some of the sessions I even I got from you with your championship productions mm. videos you put out. Um, but it was yeah, you know wine glass drill, and then right. there was some uh, a, a version of uh, a Byron drill, and right. um, the combination play progressions. And my son comes over to me afterwards. They're running this these sessions on the first day, and, and my kids know all of them because we've we run them. And he's like. Why did we have to come all the way up here to do this? This is the same <laughs> stuff we do at home, but it it made me think about it in that, you know, everybody's kind of come up with all these different ideas, different varieties of things. What what do I run? And and they're changing it up all the time, and and you have to do that some to make it interesting and fun for the kids. But, you know, just like you saying, there's only twelve things that I kind of focus on and run that are the mm-hmm. core of what I work on and, and just speaking to that, like, how do you see that from a standpoint of, you know, how that benefits you having that, that focus, um, versus, you know, that, that variety of working on those multiple different things.
1: David Beckham has a famous quote. Um, and he says, the difference between professionals and amateurs is that professionals eliminate you know, their mistakes, they're more consistent basically in their touch and they learn to do that just through repetition. And so that, you know, I I always remember that quote I heard and it was years ago, but repetition is key in eliminating mistakes. So simple touches. So if you're going to trap a ball, a trap that comes up to your waist or a trap that's clean. So you you don't need to have a lot of variation because repetition is key for, especially for professional players is just eliminating mistakes. I always tell people who don't know soccer well, uh, if you go to a, an American baseball game, what do they do between innings? Well, the first baseman probably throws a ball out to the second base and then shortstop in the third, and they're just throwing the ball back. It's like they're playing catch. Well, those are professional athletes who play you know, 180 whatever games it is, and you know, they're major league baseball players. But still, it's just the constant repetition of doing the same thing over and over till you get it right, basically till you don't get it wrong. It's the same thing in soccer. So even if you're playing a small set of like a 5v2 or a keep away game, it's the same concept. It's just eliminating mistakes through consistency. Um, and I think that's key. And so, you know, there is there is that aspect of trying to keep it fresh. Um, you know, we talked as a team last year of trying to have variations of the same types of things that we do. Um, so there is a balance for any coach to try to, you know, spark a player's mind or not let them get too complacent with what you do but there is also the other side of it from a coaching standpoint a repetition is the key to eliminate mistakes with what you do so it's a little bit of a tricky balance and sometimes your better coaches know when to put a little bit different parameters on it to spice things up if you will for players as the season goes on. How do you
0: What are some ideas things you do to keep that interesting and to keep the You know, how do the players respond to that? How do you keep it competitive Mm -hmm. for them and keep them engaged knowing, you know, they're coming out knowing, hey, we're working on the same things, working on the same things?
1: Right. The competitive nature of every team is different. So you can't, no matter what coach you are, even if you have a core group of returners, every group is different. So we're starting into our PBA season here. Uh, you know, there'll, there'll be some differences than, than last year's team. So really, trying to tap into what what makes a team tick is it is it competitiveness, uh, is it relationship? Um, you know, are those are there is there tension in the team? So those are things that have to be taken into account for when you're planning a session or how you want to challenge the players. Sometimes maybe if you feel as a coach your players aren't competitive enough, you put parameters on them. So. You know, when we prepare for tournaments here or going into the national tournament, if if guys lose, let's say, a 5v5 game or a small-sided game, they'll have incentives. They'll have, you know, they have to run more or they'll have to get the balls, cones, and pennies, a little thing like that. But guys don't want to do that. Right. So even if they've got to pick up the balls and clean up the shed for a day, they're not going to want to do that. So you challenge them, you know, specifically with, with different types of parameters like that for the year and sometimes it's fun sometimes you want to make it fun it could be um you know carrying someone or doing a wheelbill rail or or you know just silly things but you always want to challenge players in different ways so that it doesn't just kind of get routinely monotonous for the players as well okay well um i'm going to jump back to what i would usually open up with
0: and and you said you've been coaching now at collegiate level, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And you shared with me before kind of how you got into that because you didn't just go straight from right. college to, right. to coaching collegiately. So how did you you know make that transition right. as you came out of being a player, and right. you know, your background as a player, into you know what made you go into coaching? Right.
1: I watched my dad growing up as, as my coach. And my dad actually was a founder, in some regards, of three different clubs. And so just for years, I hated it, but I listened to my dad over and over and over, you know, being a a club director, being a club coach. And so my college experience was a good one. In some regards, without saying too much, it kind of changed my life in terms of decisions I was making in college, just through who I became through my four years. And after I graduated college, um, I kind of got burnt out of playing. And I actually went in to be a counselor at a hospital. And I was a, a high school coach. I was a club coach. But I really missed that college environment. It, it sounds weird, but I missed like the road trips. I missed the van rides. I missed the, the you know, being on a bus with a team. And it wasn't so much about the games that I even remembered as much as my teammates. Um, so for me, I knew that despite making good money in the hospital at the time, I wanted to be back in, in the college game. So uh, I moved into a really small apartment, not great environment. I made $3,000 a year. And I, I, I literally probably put in 60 to 70 hour work weeks for $3,000. Uh, but I was happy, as weird as that sounds. I was 23 years old, and I knew that that was kind of my calling, God's calling, if you will. It's just what I felt internally for me. So. Um, that's how I got into coaching and I kind of worked my way up. I was an assistant for a year, then they gave me the head men's job. And then after that, they said, we want you to be a women's coach. So then very quickly I went from, you know, not even being in the college game as a coach to being a head men's and head women's coach in three years. And I was, I think I was 24 years old. I was the youngest coach in the country and I made a lot of mistakes, but I always coached out of passion. You know so even in my mistakes I think my players responded to the fact that they saw how excited and enthusiastic I was to to coach and just to be a part of the environment again so from there that's kind of where my career took off and had a lot of successful years but those early years are fond years because uh, fond memories because I just remember all the all the things that I was learning on a daily basis was just really exciting for me so Coaching was in my blood from watching my dad, but I've kind of taken some of his style and then and then taken my own direction with it as well. Okay. Um, something you just said in there as far as, like,
0: you know, we all grow from experiences in, in coaching and learning, and, and I think most great coaches are, are learners. You know, they mm-hmm. want to keep learning. They mm-hmm. keep studying the game and studying other coaches. Um, do you think, though, that your focus as a coach has changed from when you first came into coaching to where you are now
1: right Uh, 100 percent i've I've followed that same route of being constantly a bit more aggressive when i was younger and challenging players more um and trying to win games through motivation and you know getting in players face and, and that type of thing to really becoming more of a relational coach becoming a lot more poised, taking things into perspective of being being more calm and having the right moments when to really challenge teams. Um, I think setting the standard as a coach has kind of become more of my philosophy than the day-in-day-out grind of trying to push your players. Um, some of the some of the hardest times I've ever gone off on my teams in recent years when I've really challenged them to is when, when actually we won a game uh, instead of losing because if players become complacent or they, you know, they don't play to the standard that you set for them, that really bothers me as much as the team who's trying their best. And just on a given day, they, they don't perform. So that aspect of my coaching has changed a lot through the course of the years. And the last year at PBA, we, we were behind, I think six times. And we came back to either tie or win the game, you know, in all of those games. And I think, I think if I was a younger coach, that probably wouldn't have happened, because I would have been panicking or yelling or, or being too aggressive, and the players would have tensed up. But I, I think just the consistency of approach, the calmness, uh, is maybe the, you know, the way in which my players have responded on the field, because you know, whatever type of coach you are, your teams are going to follow in the mold of whoever the coach is. And, and I think that's been a key that I've had to learn through the years is just to I wouldn't say mellow, but just to assess and, and, you know, be prepared for, for the, for the, you know, the challenge. I mean, season is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not on any one game. You've got to be consistent day in, day out and your players will respond. Yeah. Um, you were saying
0: before, you know, you're, you observed your dad a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I always ask this question, like kind of, who was the most influential coach in your life, right. um, well, and and maybe besides your dad, if there was another one, but who who are those coaches for you? There's
1: one main coach. Obviously, I could I could speak about my dad all day, and I don't want to diminish the importance of, in 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 who I've become through him. But my college coach's name was Dan Wood, um, and and Coach Wood really changed my life because I, I wouldn't say. <laughs> I wouldn't say Coach was the most uh, tactically knowledge, knowledgeable of Coach, especially back in the early '90s. There wasn't a lot of focus on tactics, but when it came to the relational side of it, Coach had kn- knew how to pull the right buttons. You know, I mean, like I said, I, when I was 18 year old, I, I was a punk kid. I was an attitude. I thought I was better than I was. I wasn't fit. Um, off the field decision making was not was not good, but Coach had the ability to 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 kick me in the backside, putting it mildly, but yet loving me at the same time. It sounds weird, like talking about love as a coach, but he had that unique ability. And I learned a lot from him about tapping into the psyche of an 18 year old, because honestly, freshmen and sophomore, they, they don't even really know who they are, who they're becoming in some ways. Once you get that independence moving away from mom and dad. And, and I learned a lot from coach on how to mentor, basically how to lead by example. And, and coach is now the executive director of the National Christian College Athletic Association. He's done very well. And I still have a good relationship with him to this day. At any point I can talk to him, call him. And, and, and so that relationship for me as a coach was, was key, you know, obviously my dad growing up and getting into coaching, but but coach wood was really the main coach that that really um inspired me to to really tap into the relational side of of coaching and do you find that
0: you know you're saying is that more effective you feel like than you know were you still getting the wins back in the day when you kind of came at it from a different approach or do you feel like the, the approach you take now is is more effective or um even just uh creates a better environment,
1: or? The thing is that that constantly changes. You mentioned earlier about, you know, about the game and changing. Um, Here's this phrase I say to my players all the time, and I say, I know enough that I don't know anything. You know, it's kind of a funny quote, but the point is, is like, personalities are always changing. Today's generation are always changing. Um, 50% of incoming freshmen say that their best friend are their parents. That would have never happened 10 years ago. So the, the point is, is like, even though tactics of the game constantly, you say, can change or different types of systems, really the most important thing that's changing is personality of, of players and generations. Uh, I can definitely look back and, and see that, uh, you know, see that for sure. And the type of players that I was coaching 15 years ago to the mm-hmm. type of players that I'm coaching now. Uh, so so, maybe in those early years it worked or some of the things I did worked, but you can't always treat players the same way you know you could a decade ago. Yeah. so I think I think your better coaches in today's age are the ones that are most consistent so players know what they're getting, uh, and then also the coaches who have that ability to relate with their players. You know, you can look at a lot of coaches and you only see one side of it where, you know, maybe a coach is yelling at a player like Tom Izzo that I know that was a controversial thing and everyone had opinions about that. The one thing I do know for sure, regardless of where you stand, is you don't know that player's relationship with the coach off the court. And I'm not saying, I'm not taking a side of what was right or wrong, but I'm just saying, you know, people from the outside don't have the whole picture. You know, some of my players I need to challenge more. Some of my players I need to love more.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, sometimes just an arm around the kid or a hug is as important as really challenging them and saying it's not good enough, you need to get better. Because maybe something's going on off the field or off the court, whatever sport, that that, that particular player needs because maybe other people don't see it. Yeah. So I think that is a really key aspect of coaching that goes way beyond the drills, the sessions, the games. Uh, I think that really is a big key in results.
0: Yeah, I feel that's where the relational piece is really important, and that's what I even start with with you know, my formula in my book is that, that motivation piece of, and not just how you motivate, but you, that you need to get to know your players and know their want-tos, their have-tos, mm-hmm. kind of what makes them tick. And then by knowing that, now I know which buttons to push. I know, you know, how to motivate them. And if they know that I care, you know, that's when I am able to push them a little harder. Because Mm -hmm. then they know that, hey, I'm not coming from a place of I'm, you know, I'm getting on you as a person. I'm trying to help improve you as a player. and, And that's what we're out here talking about. So my conversation with you on this field right now, is not about you, the person. It's about you, the player, and we're trying to get you better. Yeah. So I put that in context with them. But having that relationship helps me be able to, I think, coach more yeah. effectively. With that, um, are there um, going back to you know the coaches that had influence on you, or, or maybe even not a coach that you had? Is there a lesson um, that you've learned that you just you still apply today that st- yeah. sticks with you, stuck with yeah. you?
1: I, we call it a coaching philosophy you know why is it the coaches uh, coach and a friend of mine his name is Paul Barron, PB played for England uh he played for Arsenal uh, in the Premier League and uh, and he coached for years in the, at the highest level in the premier League and and I was over he was he was a goalkeeper coach at Newcastle and I went over and i spent uh, spent some time with him and he invited me to come to a game it was great but I remember being alone with him in a car, and he and I was young. I was probably twenty five years old, and he says, "Why are you coaching?" And he says, "What do you want?" It's kind of a direct <laughs> question, and I said, well, "From you know, an English." Yeah, <laughs> I want uh, to. I want to win. Okay, who doesn't want to win? Okay, what do you want? I'm like, I want to play well. Okay, what coach doesn't want? What do you want? And he kept saying this. What do you want? Like aggressively, and I'm like, I, I don't. You know, and I, I, I'm, I'm here. It is a Premier League coach, right? And I'm young. I'm like, I, I, what am I supposed to say? You know, this guy's this, and you know, all these people, and and it got quiet, right? Kind of like that. And he basically said, he said, "What is your philosophy?" And and I and, and on the spot, I couldn't answer him. I knew I knew my passion, but I didn't know what my philosophy was. And he says, "Let me tell you mine." The players that you coach will forget what you said. They're going to forget what you did. But the players of your coaching will never forget how you made them feel. Mm. And it hit me like a ton of bricks and I realized in my own life as a player that was real for the coaches that I played for. And it's always left that lasting impression on me is that's right. You know, players, you know, a lot of my players now have you know many of them have children most of them are are married you know they've gone separate ways but they remember the feelings that they felt playing for me as a coach or in particular that given year that given team in their career so for me that's the philosophy so if you talk about what is their one thing i think that is the biggest key is players will forget what you did and said they're not going to remember a lot of team talks or lessons or tactics or training but they'll remember the feeling that they felt being a part of playing under you as their coach.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you, um,
0: for you as a, as a player, did that come from a place that how, you, you know, how a coach made you feel? Did that come from a place of maybe their belief in you or um, how they maybe kept you accountable or what, what was that for you um, that you received from those coaches that you remember? Like, this is how, this was the most impactful thing and how they made me feel that I remember.
1: I, I look back on my playing career with some regrets. That's a weird statement. But I never was the player that I could have been. And, and I think it's also why I pursue constantly as best I can as a coach. Because I was never able to, and and my coaches did a really good job, to be fair, and they got to me to where I was. And I had a good career. I got honors and these types of things. I played overseas for a while. But as a player, I never really got to that level. So, you know, what I'm saying is if I put myself in my coach's shoes trying to get the most out of me, what worked and what didn't. And now that I'm a coach, it's why I pursue it. It's interesting. I had this conversation with a a teammate recently. A lot of the best players that I played with, guys who went pro, were all Americans. Just phenomenal players. The game came easy to them. They were they were really fast or really athletic or scored thirty some goals. But they're not in the game anymore. You know, they, they they've moved on to whatever aspects in life. But for me, I think that drive of always wanting to be around the game and to push more and to get more probably comes from my own career as a player because I never reached the level that I probably could have. So that always has me desiring more to 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 learn the lessons I had as a player and then to try to relate those to players that I'm coaching now. Well, cool what does it mean for you to be successful as a coach now wow success is the hot button i mean you talk about your book or interviews with coaches success can be defined by whatever a coach you know determines today's age of espn highlights is not my measure of success i think if it is i think if you're looking for titles or championships or trophies you're always going to be searching because the day that you, in 2012, we won a national championship. And I remember holding the trophy, being excited. And I remember waking up the next day thinking I've got to recruit and do it all over again because people are coming for us. You know, they're trying to target us. So the the point is, is like those things come and go. So when you talk about the measure of success, what does that mean? Uh, Every coach will have their own determination of what that is. Um, I, think it, I think it's twofold though. and People don't talk about this a lot, but I think it has to do with what your goals are as well as the uh, university you work for or high school team or club team or you know, you're, maybe you're a JV coach. What are the goals? Is it to uh, play college soccer? Is it to earn an athletic scholarship? Is it to become a pro? That's where I'm at now. So when I meet with my players, um, a lot of, of the current players on my team desire to turn professional. But then I've also got a lot of players on my team that, that desire to become a professional in something else other than you know playing soccer, playing football. Right. So uh, the key is is that can you translate someone who wants to become an accountant and not really continue playing soccer after college? Can you really tap into them to become the best player they can be? Because if they can then that's success because that's going to translate to when they're uh, a a husband or a father or an employee. That is the measure of success if you can really challenge your players to become the best version of themselves. But I think it's twofold and I think sometimes coaches have different aspirations maybe than the university they work for or a high school coach has a different vision than maybe what the, the principal or athletic director wants. I see that a lot and I think when those don't line up, uh, it's why so many coaches switch from one club to another, or from one high school to another, because there's just what they want and what who they work for is different. Then, then, then it's not great. Fortunately, here at PBA, the the visions align, which which you know it makes me excited to come into work every day.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I mean, yeah, when you can come in, I think like you said, when you take it on the field with a passion, um, like you said, the players kind of mold into that passion as well and they pick mm. up on that even if maybe their passion isn't as strong as yours right. they'll they'll follow in with it you know they'll they'll pick up some level of that and even right. you said with like the like for us at the high school level you know there's there's not a whole lot of talk of you know hey we're we're talking about professional level and things like that we're talking about college with mm-hmm. some of them but for most of them you know we we talk about that standard and and even, you know, the school has, you know, an excellence and everything standard, and, and we've kind of taken that as well to, to the field to say, you know, that, that's what we're playing for. That's, that's our standard, and if we're seeking that, if we're working towards that, um, then the results may tend to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, th- those things will start to show up if, if that's our focus, because if we get worried about every single loss we're taking... You know we're gonna to start to go the other way rather than looking at that that standard and you have that um your your summer workout thing with the mm-hmm. the hill and that became I took that this year as a theme for us and as we were playing through the year and we're you know we're suffering some losses and things we we changed our focus from the teams we were playing to that hill and we mm-hmm. literally started going and running right. these hills to make that our focus as a team rather than just hey we're going to play this team this week this team tomorrow this is who we're looking to beat we made it something bigger and it propelled us to you know winning a district whereas we hadn't been able to do that in the previous couple years so um, that standard those things you set um, yeah I, I see how that same thing how it applies with that um and being successful, if, um, if you could give a piece of advice to any aspiring coach, yeah. um, what would that be? And maybe just any coach or maybe even to this, this collegiate level where, you know, you're coaching now, right. you know, right. <clears throat> what, what piece of advice would you give?
1: There's, this, is, this is a kind of a, a lecture in some regards I give to coaches, but this is a mistake that in particular a lot of high school and younger coaches make. And and there there's a quote I I don't know the exact quote, but it has to do with this. If you want uh if you want to men to build a ship, you know, what you don't do is tell them that, you know, they need to to go build a ship and go get the materials and to build a ship, what you want to do is teach them the the endless immensity and the longing for the sea. In other words, that's kind of a quote that out, that's out there. So if you translate that is Don't tell your players, now that you've got a role as a coach, it's not an authoritarian figure of we're going to do this and you need to do that. Instead, give them a vision for a melody in their head. Give them a vision of what they want because then when you have a team aspiring with you, then that's very different than you being an authoritarian and demanding things from your players. When you have have players who want it the same as you do, Whatever that is, whether it's to win one game that season or whether it's to win a national championship, then you've got something special. And I think coaches make make mistakes, especially younger coaches or newer coaches, where they feel like this entitleship, this you know this uh, you know all of a sudden this sense of authority that they can go out there and demand this. You, you'll lose players' respect that way. If you, if you give them and you teach them the long length, I think the quote is that the, the longing of mindless immensity of the, the sea, uh, it's just amazing because then you've got something special. And I think that if there's one thing that I would try to, to get across to younger coaches, it's that. Give them a sense of vision that they can pursue because then you're fighting for the same things together. Yeah. I have a saying that I, <clears throat>
0: that I repeat to myself, because I can get a little bit long-winded when I'm out there coaching and, mm-hmm. and teaching or talking to a player, but um, just power comes from the vision, not the volume, and that's a reminder to me. It's not so much how much I say, or um, how many words that mm-hmm. I that I say it in, but it's the the vision that mm-hmm. that longing for for something that is gonna. Compel them and give them that feeling, like you were talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. more than all the things I say. Mm Because I I think that still, there's only a few things I remember from all all those years of playing different sports and coaches and whatever. There's a few things I remember that stuck, but I do can I can absolutely remember moments and feelings of just being in that moment with the team Mm -hmm. or with with the coach. the arm around you, the kick in the pants, I remember those things vividly. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, I'm gonna um, transition to some questions from the crowd, say. Okay. Sure. And um so I had a a a youth coach um, ask this that what are what are the biggest challenges and obstacles that you face at, at the collegiate level here it's division two and CAA Division II uh, what are the biggest challenges and obstacles you face and what strategies are used to overcome them? And then you would also like to know what strategies you you use to build cohesiveness and a winning culture with your players. Mm-hmm.
1: The biggest challenge, in, in, in particular where we're at, is cultural barriers. You know, if I look at my current PBA team, um... We have, you know, obviously the the game of soccer is a global game worldwide. So we've, you know, we just had a player arrive here from Holland. You know, we got in last night. And then uh, we had another player arrive from France and then another player arrive from uh, uh, Chile. You know, so all of a sudden you've got these different yeah. cultures and backgrounds uh, of, of how the game should be played or, or those types of things. So the biggest challenge that I have is trying to mold everyone together for one common goal, one common purpose, uh, and that's what's unique about the game of soccer. Maybe more than more than other sports is because of that global connection of the of how the game is. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's always the NCAA paperwork and eligibility and academics. Absolutely, those things are, are important. But I think if you can mold the mold the, the culture of the team, that's important. Relative to ideas and things that we do. Uh, I've got a a story for that it it mentioned 2012 winning a national championship we won that championship in the city of Montgomery Alabama and that's where we were playing and we have a thing called FFF which is Mm -hmm. Forced Family Fun that was an idea that came from Dave Brandt when he was at Messiah forced Family Fun is off-the-field activities which have absolutely nothing to do with with the game at all And in Montgomery, Alabama, here we are. We're going for some of these guys biggest Game of their lives the national titles on the line you win or lose this You'll have a ring the rest of your life and you'll always remember be remembered as a national champion Uh, We took those guys To a cow museum True story. The, the name of the museum, you can look it up on the internet, is called the Moo, M-O-O, Moo Cow Museum. And here they are, they're getting ready, national team, and I'm taking these guys, who are players from Brazil and Uruguay and all over the world, and I'm taking them to a cow museum, you know, before we play the game. And I think I could write a whole book about the importance of memories like that and how that leads to on-the-field performance. You know, and some coaches are like, that's really dumb. Why would you do that? Well, the point is, is like when you spend time together away from whatever your particular sport you're coaching, if you're a basketball coach and you go on the road or you travel or you're hanging out in someone's backyard or you're swimming or you have handshake competitions or, you know, uh, paper, rock, scissors competitions, all these little things are really important to results because it's those types of environmental things off the field or off the court, whatever you're coaching that really do affect on the field performance. So every time we go on a road trip, we do something that has nothing to do with, with, with our sport at all. Sometimes we'll go to art museums. Sometimes we'll go for nature preserve walks. Um, Sometimes we'll, we'll hike and go in waterfalls. Those are the things that are most important, I would say, to coaches. That you, that's very important to the chemistry of a team. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So you actually have a couple players that were part of that national championship team, or that and have played for you before, mm-hmm. that have become assistant coaches for you yeah. and your staff. Yeah. From from you know being a part of your, your right. program, um, you know, it, how I mean, is that a a pretty cool thing it's, to... it's humbling.
1: Uh, just yesterday um, I coached a player named Joel Robinson and Joel played for one of my first Greenville teams and Joel was a goalkeeper and uh, he, he won a couple championships with me in 2008, 2010 and then Joel followed me as an assistant coach and now Joel is at uh, Azusa Pacific University near Los Angeles in mm-hmm. California and he called me just out of the blue yesterday. And basically said, yeah, I just want to let you know, you know, I'm praying for you and I hope you do well this year and I'll be following you. And like, that's a really humbling thing now, you know, when, when you've got, I guess it's called the coaching tree, but I've got mm-hmm. my coaching tree through the years has gotten bigger. Some are high school coaches, some are club coaches, uh, and some, some have done very well as, as college coaches and head college coaches. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's really a, a, a humbling thing. But also awesome as well, because somewhere maybe I'd like to hope that maybe I inspired them to get into coaching. And I always tell them, hey, take what you learned from me and become better. You know, take take what you liked that I did and then adjust the things that were frustrating to you maybe with me as a coach and then, and then be your own best coach. And I, I take a lot of pride in that for those guys because I'm excited for them.
0: Yeah. yeah. I joked that my coaching tree is Greg Hilbert. <laughs> Greg, that's for you. Yeah. Um, this is a apparent a question um, and, and maybe you have an answer for this or not but when do youth athletes <clears throat> usually identify they have what it takes to play in an elite level and, and maybe you know whatever elite is but what usually makes or breaks them from reaching their potential and is there a m- moment time there that you think it's clearly kind of too late for them um, you have any thoughts on that or
1: Um, You know, the the thing is, I think that parents make the mistake of is pushing their players too early at a young age. You know, in today's age, like you've got 10 year olds and parents are talking about how much scholarship they're going to get to a university. Like that's just the wrong. It's the wrong mentality. It's the wrong mentality. I think players, if you're looking for an age probably around 14 to 15 years old, transition one way or another. They'll either they'll either grasp yeah. the passion for the game and to really pursue getting better, whether at any sport, or they'll or they'll get to the point where they, you know, sports are fun, but it's just not it's not that important for me. And I'm talking specifically about club and going into to college. So I would say about that age range, but parents parents who push parents who do a lot of private lessons when they're younger, parents who talk constantly about this has to be your end goal without the players themselves really realizing what it is they want from life. Um, you know, I think it's a tricky balance right there, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: I'll skip that one. Um, what do you, you know, collegiate level, um, what are you looking for when you're looking to recruit players? Right. Um, what are the you know the character traits um, that that you may be, be looking for? And I, here's one question: like, what are two non-negotiable qualities that you're looking for in a recruited player?
1: Got a great story for that. I, a couple years ago, uh, we had a, a a player here who was an under U.S. under 20 national team player, and on paper, on mm-hmm. resume, it's it. I mean, very impressive. You know, very impressive. Yeah. And and when the player showed up, the mindset wasn't right. You know, the work rate, the attitude, the assumption that everything was going to be given to him, um, even the effort on the field, it just, it it, it it was not the type of character that that we were looking for in a player.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, if I compare that to another player that I had, when I went to go recruit him, he played for his mom's club team And I went to recruit him and the field was in the middle of a cornfield and half the team were boys and half the team were girls. But when I watched him play in that game, he was a great teammate. You know, he wasn't trying to do too much. He wasn't not passing to the girls. Uh, He was very supportive. He was very encouraging. Uh, He was working really hard. And I thought, you know, this this is the type of player that I want in the program. You know, he may not have the under-20 national team title, you know, on his resume. But yet, as a teammate, I saw things that day that I really admired. Attitude, character, work rate. Uh, a lot of things there to be said. And, and that I admired. And, and followed that story through. Uh, his name was Seth Huber. He went on to become the national player of the year when he was a senior. He mm-hmm. won the Cairo Junior Award winner. And he was amazing. He was a two-time All-American. And it it completely translates to when I recruited him, just the type of character that he was, regardless of the team that he was playing for and how high a level or not it was. The characteristics were there. I can go back and clearly see who he was and who he became.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, When I interviewed Mauricio uh, Ruiz from Jacksonville, he said the same thing as far as teammate. Teammate was one of those two non-negotiables was right. was teammate and um so I think a lot of you know parents or even you know young athletes they, they think it's about the physical traits mm-hmm. or the numbers they're posting and, and and I think those things they matter they get you recognized um but when you're looking to go play at you know these these elite collegiate levels and for teams like yours um, that are they're competing for national championships I think it's important for them to to also realize in here you know we're the the number one things we're looking for you know maybe those top couple things mm-hmm. one of those is being a good teammate yeah. Yeah. Um, second question um, on um, in, in this set of questions um, how do you go about increasing player confidence levels
1: it's, that is the that is a very difficult question and and in some regards you know if you look at a striker a forward for those that don't you know an expected goal scorer mm-hmm. if you want soccer yeah. um, those guys go through droughts at the highest levels they go through droughts you know I remember Wayne Rooney you know striker when he was playing at Manchester United he went nine games without scoring a goal and everyone said he's washed up he's no good he's you know he's out of confidence and then. His 10th game, he had a hat trick, and then he scored like six games in a row after that. The point is, is, like sometimes there's no substitute for just going about the process on a consistent basis because eventually things will come. The nature of any athlete is going to be ups and downs and slumps, and the, the more that you can tap into your players to realize that consistency is the most important thing is, is, is the deal. Sometimes coaches talk about goals so if I say, you know, Joby, you're going to play for me this year. What's your goal? Well, I want to score 15 goals. That's not realistic. Maybe you could, maybe you couldn't, but there's way too many things there that are out of your control. Are you going to get injured? Or am I even going to play you? You may not, have, you may not even be in the lineup to play that many or score that many. But can you, as a player, work your hardest? Can you spend time before and after training, you know, shooting on goal? Can you work on fast footwork stuff? Can you work on things that are within your control is Mm -hmm. the key. And so that I think is very important relative to players who kind of go through the up and down slump is just trying to be consistent and realize and communicate that to your players that that's just part of athletics. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I had an interesting story with that with with regards to the goals and you know I will ask my players to set individual goals maybe after the season for the next year or you know maybe at the beginning of the season and, and I find that it kind of helps them you know continue thinking about it continue getting out to work uh, because we're not in that team team right. setting yet um, but you know so I'll check back in with them like maybe midway through the season and again beginning of our season this year it wasn't wasn't going well as we got you know a month in you know, and I started asking the players. I started checking back in with them. Hey, you know you've you've reached this goal you said. Let's think about setting another one. What do you think that would be? And as I went through that, none of them could give me any more individual goals. They they it was the hardest thing for them to answer because mm-hmm. they'd either already gotten to it or they were close or by that time they didn't care anymore about. Mm-hmm what those individual goals were because we were so focused into where we are going as a team and it didn't look like we might get there. And they just became fully engaged into what those team goals were that they couldn't even tell mm-hmm. me what those individual goals for themselves would be anymore. Right. So, interesting as far as just, you know, being able to align where we're going with the team stuff. And if, and if you're doing that, you, you generally tend to be able to get what you want Mm-hmm. as a player uh, when you're invested into that mm-hmm. um, uh, I think how do you uh, I think I say this? probably the last last, last question for you okay. um, how do you go about cultivating mental toughness and grit in individual players
1: hmm that gets back to tapping into players' psyches in uh, some players they need to treat differently you know I, a lot of a lot of that's a debatable topic, I would say, amongst coaches is, is should, you, should you treat every player the same? Um, you know, it was interesting, when I coached men and women in the same season, so I was the head uh, ladies coach at a university, head men's coach at a university, um, there was a phrase that Anson Dorrance, who's at University of North Carolina, hmm. women's coach, you know, he's been there so many years, he's won like 600 games, yeah, 20-some national championships, But he coached both men and women for a while, and a phrase that he says is, "Men, you have to drive; women, you have to lead." And the the point is, I remember that is an interesting phrase, and he's—I've heard him give lectures on how do you tap into that mental toughness, and sometimes it's just in your approach as a coach, uh, and sometimes players have different attitudes, you know, towards that. Some some players again need. Need a little bit more coddling, need a little bit more individual film work, you know, and then some players do, you've got to constantly stay on them because they may not have that internal drive, you know, and players will see things differently than you do. Film, however, doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a player who's really butting heads or you feel like he is just, he's just consistently is lazy and you tell that player that like you're, you're being lazy, you're not working hard enough. He will not agree with you. Yeah. No matter what you say as a coach, even if he respects you or likes you, he, he, yeah, okay. He's, but if you pull out the film and you sit down together and you, let's take a look at this situation. Oh, okay. So that would be something, and, and that doesn't happen a lot at the high school level. It doesn't happen a lot at the club level. It happens at the collegiate level, and it especially happens at the professional level, where. Watching film would be one of the biggest answers to that question is, is really e- evaluating and analyzing. What do the numbers say? How was your pass completion rate? What? How many miles did you put into a game? You know, There's a lot of tracking systems now of, of fitness of players through the course of the game. How many mm-hmm. did they cover? Well, I worked as hard as I can, but you put in four miles and your teammates put in six. Yeah. okay you know so i think you've got to have statistical data that can back you up in terms of your perception and sometimes you know what you're wrong sometimes maybe i'm wrong as a coach when i sit down with a player and we look at film like i get it like you're probably right in that situation so sometimes it holds you accountable as a coach too yeah Um, when i was here at pba
0: um uh, one of the coaches had told me about you know, coaching experience he had in the past, where you know they were sitting. You know, and this is over 20 years ago, but they they'd be sitting on the on the bench, and the coach would have them take like pieces of paper or uh, or tape, and they would watch a player on the field, and they would mark his touches, mm-hmm. and so it kind of kept them engaged. But they were also marking like you know when he gave the ball away and stuff. And then the player would come over, you know, halftime, water break, sub and they would be able to show it to him so he could see and and I took that with me you know into, into coaching and I had this with a player a few years ago where we sat down like that and you know we went through this game and you know, it was obvious to me but it wasn't obvious to him and I said hey you, you know I want you to go back and look at the film at mm-hmm. film and I'm like and and I told him I was like here I counted your touches you mm-hmm. touched the ball more than anybody 40 something times but you literally gave it away probably 50% of the time mm-hmm. and it made the difference in the game right. I want you to go back and look at it and and tell me what you think because he, he didn't really believe it he, just right. telling him when he went back and watched the film and came back to me he's like I saw it I I totally was right. off I I get it and I'm going to try and improve to be better there um, so, so it definitely made a difference Um I know I said that was going to be the last question. I had one more I thought of. Um, you know, being at, at Palm Beach Atlantic Christian University, um, how does your you know you have players here that and, and I myself when I came to Palm Beach Atlantic thought I was a Christian and you know grew up at Presbyterian Church, Catholic school. Um, but how does you know how does coaching in a Christian university, a, a Christ follower, and, and having your program there with with kids that aren't always coming from right. that background, how does that affect you, um, the the way you coach and the way you approach coaching
1: these? Right. these, these the f- things? Fortunately, PBA clearly defines it, <laughs> and it's something I had to find out in my recruiting classes when I came in. Some universities you're at that you know you must sign a lifestyle statement. You have to be of a particular faith. Uh, PBA's stance kind of on that is uh, the players that you bring in need to be with seeker sensitive. That's the terminology that PBA uses. It basically means, uh, although as a coach and as staff, you know, we clearly, uh, faith is important to us, uh, our faith in Christ, and it's important to me. I think leading by example to your players is the most important thing. And as long as you communicate with your players to be seeker-sensitive and they're respectful uh, in whether they're attendance of chapels or, or if we have a devotional or, or we say a prayer, uh, then I think that's that's kind of the approach you know here here at p b a so leading by example as well as communicating to your players up front that as long as they're uh not rebellious or seeker sensitive uh that's that's kind of the key and fortunately p b a is very clear on that and and it, it definitely makes things a little easier yeah well i know you know for me it was uh you know it was a place
0: where you know I was definitely influenced by you know the people around me as I as I got here on campus and started hearing people talking about you know the relationship with Christ and things like that that i had never heard mm-hmm. in you know my 18 years of, of being a Christian and it, it definitely you know influenced me on you know giving my life to Christ and, and being a Christ follower right. um, to where it's taken me to where I'm sitting here with you today and trying to be obedient to do a calling but um thanks man i yeah. appreciate it welcome appreciate, appreciate it. you sitting here with me i appreciate your your friendship and you helping me with the uh when i come to you about yeah. coaching needs yeah. and stuff wish you the best man. but thank good you. luck on the season that you start in a couple weeks mm-hmm. yeah, cool, the 14th man. couple yeah about a week week and a half yep mm-hmm. all right cool man well all thanks right. thank appreciate you appreciate it